Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 53rd episode of The Goods, a film podcast. How are we doing, Brian? I'm back. We're back together again, ready to talk about a movie. <laughs> arguably. Yeah, arguably <laughs> it was a film. It, it was something. Images that played for an extended period of time. What are we going to be talking about tonight, Dan? We are going to be talking about an experimental documentary from the year 2000 entitled As I Was Moving Ahead Occasionally, I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty. This was shot, directed, edited, most of the sound work, all done by one guy. His name is Jonas Mikas. I don't know how you actually pronounce that. I didn't listen to anything that actually had the pronunciation. So I, w- I think it's Mikas. Does that sound right to you? I think so. And he's Lithuanian. Okay. Or of Lithuanian origin. He kind of sounded like Bela Lugosi, who was Hungarian. That was... Or, or like um, when Hank Azaria does Bartok the Bat in Anastasia. So it's, it's just mm. kind of ambiguously Eastern European. And you got to get used to this accent because the movie is him talking to the listener for five hours. <laughs> Approximately. What's the, what is the runtime that this clocks in at? So it clocks in at four hours and 48 minutes by my measure. Um is, is that what you got as well, Brian? Yeah, I think we watched the same cut on YouTube, which was the only place I was able to find this. You couldn't get it on uh, Amazon Prime or whatever. Yeah, um, it's actually out of print. The DVD is rare and somewhat expensive, perhaps surprisingly. Um, it's definitely a niche target audience. But yeah, I watched it on Vimeo, which had the whole thing in one long cut as opposed to two cuts which is what i saw on youtube but it is out there if you just do a little bit of googling right now oh yeah i scrolled through a ways and was able to find it all as one chunk oh very nice there you go so i was curious what are the longest movies that you've watched prior to this dan well that's a good question and it depends a little bit on what you measure and how you measure it um because i think Probably the the best answer for this is the 1915 serial that is French that is called The Vampires or Le Vampire or something like that. Less Vampires is how it's written out. Um, that is about seven hours. That one's a little different, though, because it's a serial. So it's actually more like a single season of a miniseries that's just all strung together. Then again, this one is broken into chapters, but I don't think the chapters really matter that much i would consider this one film that that we watched yeah i've in past weeks been impressed with dan's ability to watch additional movies beyond what's assigned for the podcast he's got a couple different lists he's working through of movies he wants to watch and i was thinking oh man how do you fit all that in and still live a productive life but he manages it (laughs) and then i realized in this past week, I also watched a series of a TV show. It was like a mini-series, true crime dramatization that was 10 one-hour episodes. So 10 hours total. Wow. I would say that was 
considerably easier to watch than this five-hour movie. <laughs> so it's all relative. The longest movies that I would say can conclusively be called one piece of entertainment, one motion picture, are a few that have tipped the four-hour mark. So I'm looking at Gone with the Wind, Ben-Hur, The Ten Commandments, and the extended edition of The Return of the King. Mm. All over four hours, none of them quite approaching that five-hour mark like this one did. Right. But I would say, up to this point, my opinion of four-hour films, judging on that precedence, have broadly been positive. Mm -hmm. It's like, they hold up. They merited that runtime. Let's see if this one does. <laughs> There's apparently an old cinephile joke that the best runtime for a movie is 85 minutes and the second best runtime for a movie is over four hours. And I think the thought there is either make it short and sweet and give it get it over with or like give us your epic magnum opus kind of in the same vein of how you're saying four hour movies for you have, have mostly held up. Yeah, I can see that. So where did you hear about this one given how hard it was to track down i first heard of it on a very interesting letterbox list that i mentioned one time i think on the previous episode of the podcast but way back i think it was actually the return of the living dead episode i i kind of had it as a throwaway thought at the end of the episode is this letterbox list i found but it's basically called somebody's favorite movie and so it's basically you submit your number one favorite movie to this guy and like tens of thousands of people have participated. And if it's one that has not previously been listed, it gets added to the list in the order that he receives the submissions. So like the first page is like all canonical masterpieces that you're not surprised to see people have listed as their favorite movies like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now. Um, didn't mean to do two Coppola's in a row for those examples, but uh, Citizen Kane, Casablanca. And then other ones that are really not too surprising for like people who are online, like Fellowship of the Ring, Fight Club and stuff. But then you get deeper and deeper and uh, the obvious choices have been taken and you get more obscure picks. And this was somewhere in the bowels of that list. And I was like, I've never heard of that movie. And I clicked on it. And I guess I will now <laughs> describe what it is that I read when I clicked on that. It This is an epic documentary of somebody, some dude, taking his home videos over 30 years and splicing them together. And I was like, oh, that sounds like an interesting project to make into a feature film. I'd like to watch that. And then I scrolled down and it said uh, 288 minutes. And I was like, hmm, yeah, that's a no for me, dog. That's that's a little much. But I was like, I put a pin in this one. I'll, I'm at least curious enough how this could be made into an almost five-hour movie. And, and I'll keep it in my back pocket in case I ever feel like springing it on Brian or, or doing something crazy with one of my days. And I did indeed spring it upon you. So here we are. Yes, the springy peanut can of snakes has been opened. <laughs> and now they're sproinging all over us. But I would say other than The Vampires, this is now the longest movie I've ever seen. Absolutely. Yeah, this one sets a record for me, too. Yeah. So I, I would actually put this squarely in the realm of avant-garde or experimental in that it does not follow very many film conventions 
that I'm aware of. It's it's very much different and its own thing. I think the most avant-garde thing that we've watched prior to this is probably F for Fake, which kind of toyed with what is a documentary? What is your relationship with the person giving you this documentary? How can forgery and fakeness play into all of that? And oh, it just so happens the subject matter is about faking. And so I, I guess I want to talk for just a sec here. Like, wh- How do you think about and approach, or do you even bother to, films that are avant-garde or experimental or are like intentionally toying or doing new things with the medium? Yeah, I was about to say I generally don't approach it too much, but <laughs> no, it is interesting. It's good to see people experiment with an art medium. I've only really seen a couple that would firmly be experimental movies, but it, it's good that you pinpointed this as one because it really stretches what I think of as a documentary. And you even said stretches what a film is. Right. It's like there's there's no narrative here, so it's not, not really a fiction piece. Yeah. Not a story per se. But I also think of a documentary like it's usually framed around an event or something like that. Like they've gone into the field to depict something that's going on or maybe they're recreating something. Yeah, I think the two documentaries have been My Octopus Teacher, which depicted a man's midlife crisis where he got horny for an octopus and filmed it for a couple months. And then we have F for Fake, which I already talked a little bit about, which muddies the water of like what, what is actually a documentary, but I think still distinctly in the documentary realm, depicting a specific story of art forgery and Orson Welles covering that story. Right, well, and Rockafire, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. Third one. But a couple name drops that I will do as far as experimental film. In college, we watched a short called Meshes of the Afternoon, made by a filmmaker named Maya Darren. Oh, I love that one. And in that, she's like walking around her house. It's this black and white short, and there's this Grim Reaper thing that's following along after her that has a mirror for a face. And everywhere the Grim Reaper thing goes, it plays this, like, drawn-out cello note. It's like... And so when I picture experimental film in my head, that's what I'm seeing. Yeah. That one does some weird stuff. I I saw it a year or two ago. Yeah, that that one is is one that I'm aware of. Um, I haven't seen too many experimental films, to be honest. There's one more I want to call out. That I haven't actually seen, but it was talked about in a film textbook, and it had, like, some stills from it that's called Moth Light. And the concept is that the filmmaker took a film strip and squashed a moth onto the film reel. And I think just, like, put some dirt and leaves and just stuff that he took and squashed into the roll of film and then ran it through a projector. (laughs) Well, you know what that makes me think of. What does it make you think of? You invented a card game when you were in middle school or maybe high school, or I I don't know when you invented it. And one of the cards was you just, you literally took a card, smashed a bug on it and wrote, I think, smashed bug or something like that on that. Wow. You have an uncannily good memory. Of course, I was thinking of the smashed bug card from the Razor Further Adventures card game I made. But I don't know how well that's going to translate to people who have not witnessed it before. But who knows? The creation of that card 
may have been synergistic with my appreciation for Mothlight. <laughs> I, I, I think I did learn about the film afterwards, but it, it springs from the same place of incorporating organic sources for your art. I, I just, I do like the idea of a movie being considered as a physical object. Like, you don't even need to capture images with the film. You could just watch the film. Interesting, yeah. You should consider yourself lucky that I selected this five-hour film. Uh, to me, one of the most fascinating, quote-unquote, experimental films that I think even further separates itself from the concept of what is a film is Andy Warhol's Empire. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, this is the one where he set up a tripod in front of the Empire State Building and just you watch it for, what is it, eight hours? Something like that. Yeah, let's see if I have it listed here. 485 minutes, so that would be, yeah, eight hours. Yeah, so this is brisk. This is a walk in the park. I know. A trifle. In my, my document of potential episode ideas, I wrote down Empire, but we have to be doing something in the same room while it's playing. So we don't actually necessarily sit in front of the screen for the whole time, but it has to be on and we have to be present for it and something we could talk about. Okay, I took something of a similar approach to this movie, if I'm being <laughs> honest, but I did not speed up the YouTube play speed, which you can do. They've recently added that functionality to Netflix, which is kind of cool. Mm, I was very tempted to a little bit here, in part just because I knew I needed to finish the movie before we talked about it, but I, I also held out on the 1X, 1.0X. Yes, it's important. Yeah. So the title of this movie, again, is As I Was Moving Ahead Occasionally, I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty. I was going to ask you, Brian, what did you think of this title for this movie? We talk a lot about how much we like the titles of movies. What's your take on this one? Right. So at first, I thought it was pretty unwieldy. You know, I, I kind of hear the tune of As I Was Walking Down the Street, Down the Street, Down the Street in my head when I first read it. But about 15 minutes in... I thought the title is pretty genius because it really captures what Jonas is going for. I mean, he's just broadly pondering his thoughts as it comes to looking back on all his home videos. But what he's trying to get across is that he has occasionally in his life witnessed paradise. I have seen paradise. <laughs> and he hisses every time he says his S's. And he is always addressing, I think, the viewers as, my friends. <laughs> yeah. He... But, uh, I mean, sometimes I wonder, is he talking about the people in the images and those are his friends? But I think some of the time he's addressing us. And what he is going for is that a lot of life is unremarkable and forgettable and it just passes you by. But occasionally you have these moments of clarity and you glimpse perfection. And I guess this is his attempt to capture that. Yeah, I think the title is one of the better jobs that he does of encapsulating that theme, that idea. Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent title for the movie because it is not only big and unwieldy in the same way the movie is big and unwieldy, but as you mentioned, exactly captures the the objective and essence of the film. So I'm with you on that. Um, I think one thing about anything that is kind of 
avant-garde and experimental is you have to force your brain into the experience and think about like things for example when he says my friends what exactly is he referencing and what are some things he's doing with that concept and like I don't know if you're not up for doing that then it's not going to be a pleasant experience watching a movie like this and I, I kind of got about 10 or 15 minutes in and I was like all right this is just going to be a little bit of a stream here, and but I'm going to try and like think a little bit about what he is doing and why and how that matters, like with the the form of the film and like what it's kind of creating and stuff. So that's kind of where my mindset was after I had read this title and seen a few minutes of the movie. Yeah, pretty much the same for me. It you got to work to keep yourself invested, keep yourself connected here, and maybe that's part of the point, but maybe it's giving him too much credit. I guess we'll we'll mull that over as we discuss. It's like, is the length and having to endure it part of making you think about what life is? Yeah, for sure. I think that that is worth considering in this movie. Well, one other thing I wanted to say is you said you got to bring like your previous understanding of film as a medium to bear when you approach a project like this. And there is one good quote that I pulled where Jonas says, I am in every image of this film, but you have to know how to read the images. Didn't all those French guys teach you how to read images? <laughs> I think here he's just talking about, like, well-regarded filmmakers and film critics, perhaps, of French origin, which obviously there are a few. Snooty artistes. Who have taught us to, you know, the auteur theory. It's like how to parse film as art. So one term that, that I learned about on the Homestuck Wikipedia page that I, that I thought of frequently as I was watching this film is the term effort justification, which is basically the concept that people tend to attribute more value to things that required a lot of effort as opposed to the actual value of that outcome. And I think in this case, it was the fact that Homestuck is an absurdly long webcomic and that people like it. They feel like they like it because they have done the thing. They've gotten through it. And so like they feel more attached to it than they might a much shorter one that maybe delivers a similar emotional impact, but in a shorter period of time. But it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome in media format and i think if you subscribe to that theory at all then you might have some thoughts on as i was moving ahead occasionally i saw brief glimpses of beauty that's really interesting i've read an idea like that in an article that i read about where does applause come from the practice of applauding after a performance interesting and the author of that piece was basically saying that it grew out of, I came to this thing, I expended my effort and time to be here in this place and experience this performance. And so <laughs> basically standing up and you're acknowledging yourself being there as much as you are the efforts of the performer. And it's collective. Everybody is standing up and saying, oh, you're here. I'm also here. And so this thing has value because we've joined together to consume it. That's interesting, yeah. It's like making it physical 
with the literal smacking of your skin together and the sound it produces is like inserting yourself in the experience. Yeah, and the louder it is, is indicative of the more people who have come together and invested their time to say, this is worthwhile. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. I've always wondered about applause and clapping. When did that become a symbol for a good thing? Making noise by bashing your appendages together. Yeah, and at least according to this article, it said it was a very Eurocentric thing. Interesting. Okay. But that that's pretty pretty compelling. So I'm ready to start talking about what... I mean, we kind of already have, but what actually is this movie? Okay. Let's hear it. So... This was pitched as three decades of one man's home film edited into a single documentary, a single film. There's a lot of things there that need to be parsed and need to be uh, investigated. The first is this three decades thing. So there's, I think, footage in three different decades. I think there's a couple of things in the early 90s and certainly some in the 70s and quite a bit in the 70s and the 80s. Almost all of the footage comes from the approximate 1974 to 1984 decade. Like, this is a time period of his life where he got married, had his two kids, was living in Manhattan, and covers a lot of his important life events. So uh, I'm not going to tell people it's three decades of home video edited into a single thing. Like, it's not really a overall lifespan set of footage at least for like this guy's whole life it's it's pretty focused into about 10 years i thought did you make that observation at all i think that checks out i hadn't thought about it too much because it doesn't really follow a clear chronology it's jumping around yeah and a lot of these shots are just hard to watch i mean physically it's hard it like made me nauseous that's not an effect i experience a lot but The speed is weird. It's all over the place. Like, even within one clip. And the camera work is not steady. And I wondered how much of this was editing or the camera being held weird. I I don't know. It's extremely jerky and jumping around. I got a lot of thoughts on this. So that brings me to the second piece of this, which is that it's home film. And, like, when I think of home film, so this guy shot on 16 millimeter, but but just... Let's think about the paradigm of home video for a minute. Like for me, home video is like a dad puts a camera on a tripod while the kids are opening Christmas presents and like very still, or if it's not still, it's a little bit handheld to like move around a room and very much like captures in a sort of cinema verite way, being a person in that room, like watching that thing. The video cameras that I've always used and that my parents have always used have attempted to like capture in photo realism and accuracy the experience of the thing that it is capturing as if the viewer were in that exact spot where that camera was. Exactly. It's like you're there. So that's kind of what I was expecting. It was going to be a lot of clips. I assumed it would be chronological. It is not chronological. I assumed it would be like very coherent clips with sound. It's not clips that are coherent. It shoots all over the place. He definitely is like distorting the speed slower and faster as he edits it. I think that was probably in the editing, not the shooting. I can't, I'm not 100% sure because I've never used whatever type of cameras he's using that's on like actual film. Do you know much about about like 
home level, prosumer level film cameras from the 70s and 80s? Not too much. I know that we previously discussed this in our summertime episode because Catherine Hepburn in that 1955 film is carrying around on her Italian trip some kind of camera that we considered seemed to be a video camera or a, a, sorry a, a motion picture film camera mm-hmm. and we were wondering how early that technology was available to consumers and I think for a long time it did not have synchronized sound which I, I believe is what you're going for because here it seems that almost none of the footage has synchronized sound yeah I think none of it does there are some audio clips that like kind of align with it but I didn't get the sense that it was synchronized sound. And I think for a long time with 16 millimeter home cameras and, and even later with the Super 8, I think a lot of it did not have the capability of capturing synchronized sound. Gotcha, yeah. I believe the narrator Jonas here says that this is a camera made by Bolex that he was using. And I, I looked up pictures of the Bolex camera to see if it was very similar to the thing that Catherine Hepburn had. And all I can say, I didn't look into it too deep. It kind of looks like that. I mean, it's a little handheld film camera. As far as the specs, you're going to need to know a little bit more about camera tech than I do to really differentiate. But it's basically the same thing. So I did think there was something pleasing, almost tactile, about it actually being captured on real film and not dusty video. Like, there's a certain way the film just looks that, I don't know, I think it's, like, association with having seen movies that were actually on film and, like, a certain graininess to it and a certain way the colors look and a certain way it captures things when the lighting isn't well-constructed that it just looks different from what I think of home videos looking like. And granted, this was all shot way before any home videos that I've ever seen, but I thought it was at least an interesting look. Um that does weird things with the lighting that isn't realistic, but can be kind of striking. Like if it's capturing a bird flying in the air and there's a sun, it'll like distort in a weird way. The bird will get blurry and the light will drown out the stuff around it. And I don't know, it just looked a little bit different. Did, did you notice that at all? It does have a distinctive look for sure. One experience that I recall as far as home video goes you actually invited me to come watch some of your home movies once. Or, like, I was over at your house, and you said, oh, we're in the other room watching home movies. Come come see. Which felt very strange and alien to me. I think of the home video generally exists just for the family's use. And I think that is one positive here. And one thing that this film offers up that you don't get from every movie is it, it is really like an intimate look at some of this guy's intimate family life. Like, we get births of his kids here. And no detail is spared. Right. Now, you, you hit on um, just the first part of that for a second. I don't know. It brings me back to, like, a conversation I've had with people. Like, there are certain things that each of our families do that we assume is normal but we never like really process that it's not normal and vice versa. There are things that you don't do that you assume it's normal to not do that. It's actually common to do. 
And like, I had this conversation with my friend in high school. I still remember this because it was like the moment that it dawned on me just how different families were. And this is a really stupid thing, but he would come over to my house a few times and we always would like, when it was dinner time, we would say, Hey, do you want a soda? We'd like, everybody would say what sodas they wanted. And someone would grab the sodas and bring out a soda for everyone. And like, I, that was just what I grew up with. Like if you, at dinner time, you were allowed to have a soda and my friend was like, how come you have a soda every single dinner? Isn't that weird? Isn't soda just for like going out in special occasions? And I was like, no, it's what you have for dinner. But then when I went to his house, after every single dinner, their parents would be like, all right, who wants ice cream? Here, you have a bowl of ice cream. And I was like, why do you have ice cream after every dinner? Like, isn't that only for birthdays and parties? He's like, no, we have, it's just our dessert at the end of dinner. And to me, it was like two things that both of us thought were very normal, but were like totally wild to the other. And the reason I bring this up is because to me, my dad has always been a very intensive home movie filmer. Everything. He always has the video camera out. He's always playing them when we go back home. And to me, this is just like part of the experience of being in a family is somebody is filming things and everybody else is watching them and talking about the films and like remembering things because of that. But I think it's not that normal. And so I kind of connected with this, this guy who wants to capture every single thing on film not because i'm that way but because my dad is that way and i don't know it's kind of cool i i think there's some psychological stuff to unpack there that the movie gets a little bit into like why are you capturing something on film that you could just be experiencing and like forming memories of like why do you feel the urge to like capture it in something that can be preserved and revisited he does talk a little bit about that but uh, it, it at least brought me back to like the feeling of having everyday life videotapes. I like that. What I specifically remember from what I saw in your home videos, I think it was somebody's birthday party or something, but your dad walks in, I think it was your dad, and says, hi, everybody. And then the entire family says, hi, Dr. Nick. <laughs> but then later on, your little brother, Jeremy, was in the background, really young, and he climbs over a fence and falls over the fence and smashes his face in the background. <laughs> and I felt really bad for him. I mean, you guys ran over and picked him up, but... I remember this clip. Yeah. <laughs> That's the weird stuff you get. And this this movie gets some of that type of stuff. It doesn't have too much of, like, dark or weird stuff happening on film. Like, toddlers trying to climb a fence and smashing their face into the ground. But... It does have a lot of like incidental things just kind of happening in everyday life. Uh, so one thing we've talked about here is that the movie does not have any synchronized sound. And I just cannot emphasize how like weird this was to me in general, like not hearing what is going on in the scene is just not a cinematic technique that I am used to. I'm used to hearing where we are, but we don't have that in this movie. To my knowledge, every single thing that we hear is something that is added on top of film that doesn't have its own synchronized sound. A couple of the things we hear, one that Brian has mentioned and we've talked a little bit about, the director himself, Jonas Mikas, he's kind of written these, they're kind of poems, they're kind of journal entries, they're just like these reflections on life and memory and the process of making this film. Very like philosophical, but like not too deep or complex, like he repeats phrases frequently. He talks about how 
he thinks of these things as his memory and he sees beauty in them and that's what he remembers and he looks back on his life. Just give us give us some thoughts or some examples of his narration, Brian. So this movie, The Talking, think of like a less ambitious version of 727-1978. That it is a dude sitting in a chair talking for a very long stretch of time about not a lot. He's, he's not saying much. I mean, in that movie, I mentioned that it gave me a sense of, like, wonder. That's the one where the guy on YouTube talks about a Garfield strip and how it, like, changed his life, even though it's just a three-panel comic strip that is barely even a joke to begin with. And and in that, it's a guy sitting, you know, in front of a green screen, and he just talks, all one take. And I was impressed to the point that I thought, how did he do that? Well... In this case, with As I Was Moving Ahead, there's no wondering. I am not impressed by what he was able to achieve just sitting by his microphone and pontificating. The audio is not even recorded well. It's like crackling and there's hissing. And I can't stress enough that the impression I got was of Dracula making an ASMR video on YouTube. <laughs> it's an old Eastern European man purring in your ear for five hours. And you got to really think about whether that's something you're comfortable with. I, I agree with a lot of that. It is very much indeed not crisp audio. And there are long stretches of him talking. The one thing I want to question of what you just said is that it happens for five hours. It, there's a lot of time where there is it's ambient noise that he recorded somewhere else or like this weird score I want to talk about in a minute. So he actually posted his quote unquote script online and it's not formatted like a traditional film script. It's like a two column essay format. So it's more condensed than it would be in an actual film script. But all of his talking is a total of eight pages. That is like not enough text to cover five hours of talking. Like, I think he probably talks for much less than half of the movie. It, it kind of feels like it stretches out, but there's long gaps where he's not actually speaking during that time. All right, that's that's correct. You're right. And I would say that the movie is much more palatable when he's not talking. When it, generally speaking, that's not a firm, hard and fast rule. But a lot of the movie is the home video clips accompanied by like easy listening piano. What that made me think of was like a mid 2000s screensaver that you might have on your computer. You know, don't don't touch anything for five minutes and it'll be a slideshow of family pictures accompanied by some inoffensive tune and it'll just play until somebody touches a key yeah so this score is written by auguste varkalis is the name and he's only ever written scores for films made by jonas makus and i think all of them are home video compilations by the way one thing we haven't talked about that we should talk about at some point is who is jonas makus and why is he making movies Let's put a pin in that for a moment. Okay, are we ready to talk about that yet, or do we want to <laughs> defer? Let's let's complete the thought on the sound, and then we can talk about who is Jonas Mikas. All right. So, this score by Auguste Varkalis. It's mostly piano. There's a little bit of, like, 
harmonica, I think, in it. I don't I know. I think it was an accordion or maybe a harmonium. It's some kind of free reed instrument for sure, but it didn't really sound like a harmonica to me. And I think it's largely improvised or like very simply composed because it's lots of repetitive riffs. It's kind of sloppily turned into a melody. It's kind of easy listening, but it's also kind of just very meandering is what I thought. Oh, yeah. Which very much matched the tone of the the film. I agree. The piano, I generally liked. Inoffensive is how I thought of it. Whatever the free read instrument is, the the concertina or whatever he's got was terrible. (laughs) It's just two notes, the in and the out, the wah, 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 wah. And sometimes he would sing over it, but it's just these tuneless vocal sounds. He's like, ah, wah, ah. I mean, that's the noise I just made for the instrument, but he starts doing that with his voice too. A couple times, yeah. Yeah, and, and sometimes the screen just goes black. There was a stretch where I swear it was like more than a minute of just unintelligible dark footage. Like, not necessarily a a true black screen, but, like, whatever he was shooting was so dark, he couldn't see it. And the music is this two-note accordion, what can generously be called a melody. And he's doing this tuneless singing and not really saying anything. If you can't tell, (laughs) that kind of captures my feeling on what the whole film boils down to. It is nothing for a lot of the time. (laughs) That's interesting. That's like an encapsulation of your your take on the movie. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, you mentioned repetition. There's tons of repetition. We get a lot of title cards. And often what the title card says is, this is a film about nothing. Nothing happens in this film. Right. So most of the title cards are like very generic placements, like Soho in winter or a picnic or July 1971 or something like that, and not enough for us to like really pinpoint it specifically, but enough for us to like maybe get our headspace where it is. But he does this other weird thing with the titles that in general I was not very fond of, where he will have some sort of meta commentary as a part of it. The one that really got me that I really did not like is he kept writing, this is a political film, or was it this is not a political film, or was it both? I can't remember. But he kept writing those over and over again in a way that was like kind of ironic and detached that I think did not otherwise suit the tone of the film. Yeah, I didn't understand what he was going for, but he did keep asserting this is a political film. And I was wondering how, how it could be, because I think at its base, a political film has to argue that the world should be a certain way. And maybe it does that. I don't know if it spoils the film at all, but like the very last title card says that what the movie has been is a story about people who love each other and never argue. So essentially like a family story with no conflict. And I don't know if even that's true, but maybe if you're doing really deep diving to try to give this a meaning and a value beyond purely what we see in here. Maybe he's saying that the world should have more of that. I I very much interpreted that title card to be another bit of irony that 
again, I, I don't think when this movie was ironic, it, it worked very much. It's like basically saying you're seeing the idealized version. You're just seeing moments where I saw beauty. Hey, isn't it funny how in 30 years of film footage, you didn't see us fighting once? Man, we must be a, a family that never argues. Uh-huh. But like, obviously, we're only seeing snippets and the you tend to pull out the camera during happy or relaxed snippets. And I think it's kind of a joke that like, we're not seeing the full truth. I, I didn't really see that as like a genuine assertion of what his family was. I think that's insightful. But I'm with you. I didn't get the political thing at all. Like, I think he maybe was trying to make a joke about how it's not a political film, like even in the slightest. But everything is politics to some extent. Like if you're showing a happy, successful, urbane family in New York City and like centering on them, you are at least saying something about like, what is the group of people that you spend your time thinking about? I don't know what he was trying to do with that. It, it didn't click for me, whatever it was. Just to close the thought, I'm like, what is the sound here? We mentioned Mika's talking. We mentioned the weird score. There's also just like for minutes at a time, he'll take like a secondhand recording of a radio ad or a song he heard on the radio or a TV commercial or like a conversation that doesn't have to do with anything of two people in a similar room or like he was at a concert and he probably had a tape recorder with him and did that. And so it's almost like clashing sounds with what we're seeing that don't really have much connection. Sometimes it has connection, like when they show the daughter and the Nutcracker for a bit, um, they, they play some classical music. And I couldn't pinpoint whether it was the Nutcracker or even Tchaikovsky, but it at least evoked a ballet. But a lot of times the audio had nothing to do with what we were seeing on screen. Do you remember any of these like weird audio things that we, we heard, Brian? Everything that you're saying is correct. We get a mix. I would say my favorite part of the film was one of these songs that he ripped from the radio, which I had never heard before. It's called Both Sides Now. And I believe it was originally recorded by Joni Mitchell, but I think the version in the movie is by Judy Collins. And the point of the song is really, I think it captures a much more succinct version of the film's themes. It's about a lot of stuff in life being both positive and negative, and that as you go through the years of your life, you can look back and see things tinged with both emotions like the first verse she talks about clouds and how when she was a kid she you know saw magic in the clouds and oh that cloud is a castle and that cloud is a unicorn but now as an adult she thinks of clouds as bringing weather and that oh you know that's rain on your parade rain on your wedding day as alanis says <laughs> but that it can encapsulate both things it can be a force for positive and negative visions. And then she says that, oh, love is like that. And, you know, you can be swept away by romance, but then actually you're going to fight and you're going to have breakups and heartbreak. And now looking back, you can see both sides. I thought, wow, that's kind of poetic and it's a catchy song and the singer has a nice voice and it's all of the ideas that are kind of glimpsed as we move forward through this five-hour slog put much more concisely. <laughs>
you've certainly heard it before because it's in um, the Love Actually soundtrack when Emma Thompson is crying because Professor Snape is cheating on her. That's the song that plays. There's like a whole plot point around a Joni Mitchell album, but um, it's it's one of those ones that's kind of in the background, so it might not have registered when you were watching that film. Okay, we we might have to revisit that movie. I've said it a couple times now. I know it's it's come up, yeah. But yeah, see, it's interesting you say that because I actually think one distinct choice by this movie is it's actually not from both sides. It's not there's not much negative here. It's like almost entirely positive and sentimental or at least neutral things that are depicted here. So it would have been interesting and I think maybe more compelling if the movie had gone towards something that showed that like when you're living life, there's a a mix of good and bad. And a lot of it depends on how you look at that thing. You know, you can see it from both sides. I don't think this movie really goes there. In fact, I think it very much does not go there. And so I found it very jarring for that specific song to be up there because I felt like it did not align thematically with the film. But this movie does a lot of jarring things. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Really, this came in at like the four hour mark (laughs) and it was a it was a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I buy that for sure. It was something I could point to and say, this is artistic, even if it's just, you know, bubblegum pop music in an sense i mean it's more melancholy than that but it's definitely radio ready right and then the very last thing that we hear in this movie is (laughs) like the last 10 minutes maybe the last seven minutes i don't know of the movie are jonas mikas on what i think is an accordion or whatever instrument it is singing half singing some of his own poetry just like really aggressively not a great singer and singing cheesy lines like here i have i have a couple of the lines he was singing he says i don't know what life is i know nothing about what life is and he's like kind of singing it to a semi accordion tune i think this is what you were talking about earlier like just yeah where it's just the in and the out the and he like sometimes raises his voice to like an intense singing timbre but like not tuneful at all and it's kind of weird I'm gonna be honest more evocative than other portions of the audio for me even if it was not artful and that's kind of how the movie ends with that audio and then it kind of has this weird like one last clip of life is still beautiful in my memory or something like that. And then it kind of ends. The ending actually had me thinking we're all over the place here, but that's okay. The ending actually had me thinking that this is almost like the notion of, you know, the, there's the famous idea life flashes before you, your eyes, before you die. Like this is almost what you might see of your own life. Something kind of represented like this, like fragments of memories and things that happened that in the moment triggered some emotion, perhaps some pleasurable emotion as like the life snuffs out of you because the movie, the way it ends, it's sort of a snuffing out as a, a candle almost. I don't know. I thought, I thought the ending was pretty interesting actually. Like it actually felt like an ending to me. Yeah. Imagining it as signifying death is definitely interesting. Again, maybe giving him too much credit, <laughs> but I can kind of see that. Something I don't think we've said at all yet is this film screened in 2000, the year 2000. 
it seems like an older movie than that, but it also reminded me that 2000 was 21 years ago. <laughs> yeah. So it's already getting pretty vintage. I don't know if Jonas Mikas's perspective on life was altered by 9-11, but this is definitely pre-9-11. We get a lot of shots of the, the Twin Towers that are inserted without any meaning or thought the same way that we would like shoot the bank down the street, you know, mm-hmm. or, or something. And I was like, Oh boy, those are the twin towers, like four blocks from his house right there. And just for reference, he lived until 2019 actually, and died at the age of 96. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was 78 when this debuted or maybe 77, something along those lines. Yeah. Something like that. So let's talk about this guy. So who is this guy? Do you, do you know who this guy is? I had not heard of him before. Wikipedia says he was a Lithuanian-American filmmaker, poet, and artist who has been called the godfather of American avant-garde cinema. So that's pretty much all I know. <laughs> and what I come to is, what did he do to merit that? Who determined that this guy was an artist How many people sat down in a room and said, this is a guy who we need to take seriously? Because all we get in this film is badly recorded audio and not very professionally captured images. (laughs) He says at one point, he's not a filmmaker, he is a filmer. He does not make films, he just films. Which does seem astute, in terms of what we see here. It's not really crafted, although it kind of is, because like you said, it's not cinema verite that you would expect if somebody said, hey, I'm watching home videos, come sit down and watch. It's just, it's kind of a mess. It was messy. Yeah, so one thing you said to me during our 50th episode special, when I expressed an interest in making a Greatest Tits episode, is that the process of taking things that have already been created, chopping them up and combining them into a new discrete product is far more complex and difficult than you would imagine. And I think this movie had a tremendous amount of effort devoted into it because not only is he like editing clips together, but he's doing stuff like fiddling with their speed and occasionally doing double exposures presumably for some artistic effect. I mean, I I don't think this is something that was just thrown together in the slightest. I think he probably worked hundreds and thousands of hours on, on getting all of this composed. And a lot of it was really deliberate, but it is certainly sloppy to some extent. Like it, it is not focused in the slightest. Oh man, that's making me really sad (laughs) thinking about that. Because the narration definitely seems slapped on to me. But you're right that he must have had to dig through all kinds of footage and really consider how he was going to cut it together. Yeah. And that must have been time consuming. But I think this guy's claim to fame is he was like very much on the in-world of like experimental cinema in New York City. So particularly, he was a collaborator with Andy Warhol. He's actually the cinematographer on Empire, as we talked about just a few minutes ago. Oh, wow. So there's a connection. So he's 
he was like involved in that scene, but he wasn't like a leader of that scene. It also seems like he might have done a lot of writing about it. Like he had a film journal or something. So that's just what I was going to say is he had, a, I think, a column in the Village Voice, which was a really influential culture blog. Or uh, I said blog. I said, that's how much my head is in the 21st century. A really influential culture newspaper, I suppose. Magazine, I don't know. But I think he also might have started his own. And he was like always at festivals and writing about things he was seeing. But like very much in the non-mainstream area. So I think his credentials are like a sort of inside baseball experimental cinema guy that nobody would know. And if you look at his filmography, it was like, why do people care about this dude's life at all? So it is kind of unusual. I don't know. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't alone in thinking that. A couple more things about him that it's interesting. He doesn't like introduce himself at the beginning of the film. Like you'd think a thing about his life, he would like tell us some basic facts about himself, but he doesn't. He lets us figure them out. One is he he married his wife, Hollis, sometime in the early 70s. And then he's had two kids. One is a daughter named Una. And one is a son named Sebastian, who's a little bit younger. He lives in the famed Soho community of New York City, Manhattan, which is like, especially in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, where all the super hip artists lived. And he seemed to have quite a large apartment or condo. Maybe he was, we saw him in multiple places, but he had some nice living situations going on for Manhattan, I thought. Yeah, for a poet. Yeah. (laughs) He spends a lot of time filming, like, right outside his apartment. There's always, like, performance art and musicians going on. He captures a lot of that. We see his wedding to Hollis at, at one point. This was another thing that made me mad. It, like, played church music when he got married to her. But then we see that it was at a courthouse and it's like, I don't know if you're going to show your life story, like show it authentically. Don't make us think it was at a church, but then it wasn't at a church. But then it cut to later. He was in Europe and he actually had a ceremony at a church and it just kind of got my head all mixed about what his wedding thing actually was. I think he was trying a little too much in that bit. Yeah. When we say this is a documentary and I mentioned, is it really a documentary? It kind of, makes you think maybe it's not because I go into a documentary expecting to learn about what we are watching and like come away being able to talk to somebody else. Oh yeah. Lucas Mikas. Well, I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Lucas Jonas. <laughs> now I'm doing the, the Dan thing of, I can't, I can't remember <laughs> the name Jonas. Like I would be able to tell somebody on the street, something about him. And yes, the wife's name is Hollis and we know that he had two kids and their names Beyond that, it's hard to keep track of much. He lives in New York. He knows a lot of other Lithuanians, it seems. People with long beards. Yeah, he, he does a decent amount of hosting and uh, some traveling, although not all that much. He goes to Europe a couple times, and it seems like he visits the northeastern U.S. quite a bit, like New England and stuff. But mainly it's around New York. I will say if you pay close attention... The times that I was able to like have a steady stream of attention on this, you get to learn a little bit about the characters. Like I have a hunch that Hollis herself is an artist. She just always seems to be doing something like expressive in what she's doing. And Una is very confident. She's like always engaging with the adults in the clips we see. And she's like doing ballet at a young age and 
dancing and always standing with like bright, positive posture. You like get some of these cues as you watching. And I think there is a little bit of beauty in that, like just accumulating some knowledge of the person as time goes. But I also think you're right that it, it totally misses telling us anything instructive about the people directly. Like we kind of have to absorb it all through these little clips that we see. Another thing that we see quite a bit of is he's really obsessed with seasons. He has multiple monologues about seasons that he cares about. Winter and summer in particular. Like he has this thing about how snow is paradise. Do you remember that that bit when he was talking about how snow is paradise? Yes, I do recall that. And a lot of clips of like people walking around in the slush in Manhattan. I didn't get as much from it as he seemed to in terms of beauty. I got a bit. It broke it up in terms of now suddenly we have brightness and the white just made that footage stand out. Uh, It reminded me a little of in Tokyo Drifter, where we got a lot of interior spaces in that movie. And I mean, those were very designed spaces and had a lot of like crazy psychedelic 60s colors. And a lot of the inside spaces were a solid like technicolor color. But then suddenly the guy, the Yakuza guy, goes out into the snow and it's the natural world, but it's also one solid monochrome color. That's interesting, yeah. So I thought the snow scenes here broke it up in a similar way. Yeah, we get some clips of autumn, although New York doesn't have too many trees. So most of the autumn clips are like them in New England somewhere looking at the the colorful trees. And summer, he talks about how he loves summer. It's so hot that he's the only one outside. In general, he has an eye for the natural world. He does a lot of clips of birds or creeks running or trees or just like these ephemeral details on the outside of what most people would be thinking about, I guess. He does go on for a while about summer. It's hot. I like it when it's hot (laughs) you do a good impression i want to get you like reading this whole script here (laughs) and i mean just uh, yeah if you watch asmr on youtube just imagine that he's leaning right into your ear and saying these things (laughs) you know on a nice binaural microphone except not that because he like keeps like grabbing and pawing the mic and there's thumps and yeah rubs (laughs) i don't know it's like give me some space jonas Yes, please. Lean back a little bit. (laughs) But by and large, the majority of what we see are like really small, trivial things. Picnics, walks around Manhattan. There are a few important moments. I already mentioned some. There's the wedding. You said that there's the the birth of the two kids. And man, I can't believe he had his camera running like when baby was popping out the birth canal. And we see crowning. I mean, it's... It doesn't shy away. As someone who has witnessed the miracle of birth twice, this doesn't shy away from, from what that is. And I did appreciate his his love letter to his wife and the fact that, I, I don't know, that childbirth is a thing he can never experience, but he very much admires. He, he captures the first steps of his son, I think it is. It might have been his daughter, but I think it's his son. A lot of things of their kids doing stuff Were there any particular scenes that you found very memorable, Brian? Well, the 
the birthing of the kids definitely stuck out to me too. That's not something I've witnessed firsthand, but I applaud this movie for going there. I've mentioned at one point, I think a long time ago, that something I just find infuriating is the TV show Naked and Afraid because it promises something <laughs> it literally can't deliver. It can't show you any nudity. It's going to cut around everything and just be a headache for the editor. And it offers up this like premise for, in that case, titillation. And it, it, can't, it can't go there. It can't do anything with it, really. But in something that is presented as, here's 30 years of home video, I think there is some expectation that you're going to see a level of intimacy you would not otherwise see. Because that's what home video is. It's something made for the family, generally. And you don't always expect to share that experience. You don't expect to see that veil lifted aside. And here you are definitely in the thick of it. Right, it's unfiltered, yeah. Yeah, that that was extremely striking to me. And I was, I don't know if, if impressed is the right word, struck by, at least, how he captured his wife, like, post-coital nudity. Yeah, there's topless wife in this movie, too. So I wasn't going to say it first, but it's there. Just very intimate. I mean, I think it's important in the sense that we are getting an extremely intimate view into this guy's life. I mean, maybe there's footage that he said, nah, that's that's a bridge too far that we didn't see. But man, if there is, I don't know what it would have been because we, we see just about all of it that we could possibly see here. Uh, the literal birth of children, literal wife in the nude, lying in bed. So there is something very powerful in that, I think. The, the gauntly in me appreciated that. I've definitely had some things on my show that people are like squeamish about and... I, I don't know. I don't get it. I like to show it all. It's like you put a heart in a blender because you can. This movie doesn't quite go there. There's not there's not too much gore beyond the crowning that Dan mentions. But if it were gauntly, sometimes you got to cook a muskrat. You just got to have... <laughs> if it's something that you do in real life, why not run the camera? And You know me, I'm cooking a muskrat. Constantly. You just do it all the time. Once a week. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what the movie is. We talked about what the movie is. There's not much more to add. I don't know what else we could say about what this movie... There's no recap. There's no plot other than what we've said. I do have a few kind of generalized thoughts. Oh, me too. By the way, this is like the equivalent of our good things and not so good things that I'm just kind of lumping together because I think this movie more so than just about any movie we've seen, not just about, certainly more than any movie we've seen, cannot be comfortably compartmentalized into what are the good things of the craft, what are the not-so-good things of the craft, and plug that into equation and what's your score, because this is a movie that's not operating in a cinematic language that we are used to. So, just some general reactions. Yeah, I'll say I have a good things list. It's very short. <laughs> One thing that I would put is more good than not good, this movie is really hypnotic. It made me feel like I, this goes back to you saying that it was like ASMR. As I was watching it and listening to it, I felt like I was being lulled into a sense of peace, of like quietness. I don't know. It, I've never watched a movie that did this to me. 
it made me really sleepy every time I watched it. And I, I don't think that's because I was bored. I mean, there is a certain level of repetition and boredom in it, but just the way that it presented itself in this very fractured elliptical way and had these somewhat nonsensical or at least like not related audio cues on top of what we were seeing just threw my brain for a loop and like entranced me and made me drowsy. It was very weird. I don't know. That's that's just one reaction I had to it. Brian, you said you had a couple of thoughts. What What's something that you either enjoyed or did not enjoy about this film? Well, yeah. So there's a couple things I want to compare it to. And then just a couple broad observations I want to make. But I said before that it has some similarities to the setup of 727-78 in the sense that what we're hearing is one guy talking at length about pieces of footage. And in that presentation about the Garfield strip, the guy says, take an hour to appreciate the strip. What's an hour? Well, in this case, the question that's raised is, what's five hours? <laughs> you know, what does, what does it mean for your life to pass by? And here you're going to sit in one place and experience five hours passing. Like, I feel like that's got to be intentional. It's got to be thinking about the passage of time. Definitely. I mean, I think that's true. It is kind of funny. You're right. It's like this movie is about time passing, but the only way you can watch it is by allowing a significant amount of time to pass. There's something bizarre in that. I don't know. And I mean, I've seen some movie reviews, dismissive, low scores, where people say, well, that's two hours of my life. I'll never get back again. To which you can fire back, what, as opposed to any other two hours of your life that you can get back? Yeah. There, there aren't hours like that. Any hours that you spend aren't coming back the other way, ever. So, you know, maybe sometimes it's useful to reflect on that. I'm reminded of, apropos of nothing, one of my favorite Dimitri Martin jokes. He says, hey man, what are you doing in that room over there? I'm living, bro. I'm in the living room. Why don't you quit dining and come join me over here? And I don't know. I just think I'm living, bro. Sometimes when like, how am I spending my time? Am I living up to Dimitri Martin and the way that he delivers that line and that joke? And I don't know. The dude who's who wasted two hours watching whatever movie he didn't like. Would he have spent those two movies making Dimitri Martin proud? I'm not sure. It's, it's a good question. Yeah, well, I guess that's what we see Jonas doing here. He's living, bro. <laughs> and another thing I wanted to compare it to was the movie Boyhood. Very apropos. Which I've kind of danced around when we've talked about Linklater before. What's his first name? Richard Linklater? Yeah. So he directed previous selection. Actually, I think, wasn't it two of the movies we've covered? Because he did School of Rock also. Yep, everybody wants some in School of Rock. Right, so early on we talked about Everybody Wants Some, and I had a lower score for that one than Dan did because my criticism was that nothing happens. Man, that movie is so eventful compared to this one. <laughs> uh, this movie has the gall to repeatedly say, this movie being uh, As I Was Moving Ahead, multiple times says nothing happens in this film. Just big title card, like, five or ten times flashes nothing happens in this film 
Nothing happens in this film. <laughs> so uneventful. But the reason that I want to bring up Boyhood, uh, the gimmick of that one was that Linklater got the same group of actors together every like summer for 12 years to capture the central kid growing up. Mm-hmm. But... Like, he didn't really have a script for what they were going to do each year. Uh, there was something of a script. It's like, here's what the scenes are going to be. And it would kind of be fluid and shaped by what they'd gotten on camera the past year. I did not like that movie. And I feel like he just robbed. I mean, he was paying the people. so And they all like signed on to do it, but it just seems criminal to me. It's like, take 12 years of these people's lives to make a movie where nothing happens. I don't know. I don't... I can't conceive of it. I, I wouldn't feel fulfilled if I dedicated 12 years of my life to a project like that. You would want it to, to be something directed. Something constructed. Yes, I, I would. That's the route that I would go. Yeah. This movie, as I was moving ahead, occasionally I saw brief glimpses of beauty, feels like less of a crime to me <laughs> because Jonas is only wasting his own time going through this footage. Everybody we see on camera, we know that they just spent those 10 or 20 or 30 years living their lives. They were in the living room living. I'm living, bro. That That's true. It's just Jonas sitting, tinkering in his editing room, consuming his twilight years. Dad, why you got the camera out? I'm just, I'm just eating my bowl of cereal. Why do you have the camera out? Glimpses of beauty. Paradise. <laughs> but for her, she was just eating her bowl of cereal. So, and then he spent some god-awful number of hours in an editing studio putting this together. And that had nothing to do with them. So, I, I mean, I see the reasoning you come at there, yeah. Right. So in one sense, it only really needs to be meaningful to him, but it's really self-indulgent. And I think <laughs> a work of art, especially a movie and extra, especially a long movie, needs to have a value proposition to the audience, whoever that audience is. You're asking somebody to sit down and watch your film and you got to have some concept of what's in it for them. Sure. I don't know exactly what the definition of navel gazing is, but like, this is the epitome of just throwing yourself and your thoughts on yourself out into some very large canvas that you are then daring other people to absorb and consume. Exactly. And the last work I wanted to compare this movie to was our episode selection from last week. Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings. Oh, I'd like to hear this, yeah. And just some ways that I was not nearly charitable enough to Max Magician. Because Max Magician required actually recording original footage. They had to write something. They had to assemble a makeup crew. They had to secure locations. Most importantly, they had to secure a whole bunch of people who were willing to act and crew this film. It was not just one old dude sitting in a chair with his old film reels. To be fair, Max Magician's sound setup also sucked, <laughs> but there was just more to it. It was more substantive. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know. I kind of feel like there's something to that in the sense that 
that movie required a collaboration and a deliberate arc of creation, whereas this was a guy just happened to have shelves of old films that he had recorded himself and could compose them together. To me, I still think that that this movie that we're talking about this week is more of an accomplishment in the sense of, I don't know, I, I feel like you and I could make Max Magician with, let's say, three months of training and X budget and six months of time to film and edit. Like maybe we could make maybe something worse than Max Magician, but like in the same universe as Max Magician. But like, I'll say the hardest part we have the technical know how to do it for sure. The hardest part would be getting people on board and securing the locations legitimately. Uh, perhaps, yeah. And like getting getting catering and stuff. And and probably we would need a better makeup person than I have at my disposal right now. But I still feel like those are all problems that we could solve in like a week. Like if you gave us a week. Sure. And if we had some money to throw around. Exactly. Yeah. If we had $100,000 to spend, let's say, we could make that happen. This type of movie, as I was moving ahead, I don't think that's true. Not just in the sense that he captured like decades of film that he had himself had taken, but just the way it's very impressionistically assembled together to like capture a very specific vibe of life and time passing. There is a certain artistic vision to it that goes beyond the mere craft. And I think that's what you're getting at is like, this is kind of a clash of vision versus craft where this is basically no craft and basically all vision. And you compare that to Max Magician, which is like sheer execution at a barely competent level of a variety of crafts that are not present in as I was moving ahead. And I, I don't know. They're like polar opposites on the spectrum for me in terms of like what they're doing and what they're trying to do. I'm interested to hear our ratings for this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I I wrote it down and it's in a sealed envelope for me. I don't know about you. Do you have it in a sealed envelope somewhere? It's locked in. Okay. It's not going to change. Okay. Before we rate, and I think we're, we're just chomping at the bit to give this movie a number. I had one or two other thoughts. And, and one is that this movie very much struck me that it was made by someone who is very attuned to his visual sense and not his audio sense. I don't know. I feel like I react really strongly to segments of movies that have very compelling audio design. And all of this movie was pre-constructed and pre-filmed with no synchronized sound. And then he kind of like found stuff and wrote stuff to come on top of it and assumed that the visual element would be enough to evoke the emotion with whatever he had decided to accompany it to me struck me as someone who just has like a different way of thinking about things because I would want to hear the baby crying. I would want to hear the taps of the girl dancing around the, the room, the wife chuckling during the hike or sipping her bottle of wine. Like to me, the sound is so crucial. And he talks a lot about how he just sees it as images. To me, that's, that's not how I experience the world. That's not how I emotionally react to the world. This is a very different person for me constructing this. And I would like to see something like this, but for another person that 
thought about the world more like I do and experienced it more aurally, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, not O-R-A-L-L-Y, than Jonas Mikas clearly does. So, Well, I think you got to bear in mind that for a lot of the time, that technology probably didn't exist. That's probably true. I mean, it's probably a driving element of why it was designed this way. My dad's been rewatching Mad Men recently, and in one of the first episodes, which is like, you know, late 50s or maybe it's 1960, Don Draper is going around one of his kids' birthday parties with a little handheld camera, like what we've been talking about, and we see some snippets of what he's getting, and yeah, it's the same kind of thing where it's a kind of um, stilty, jittery, but still with that aesthetic quality of old film, but no sound. That's true. I don't know. I feel like he, he could have been more deliberate about involving the audio element of what he was experiencing into this film that, yeah. I mean, sound recording equipment existed at the time too, you know? Right. Especially if he's supposedly a well-known established filmmaker. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like he'd be able to get that equipment. That was, those were the main things I wanted to say as kind of prelude to where I land on this. I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say, Brian, before we jump to, is it good? Uh, yeah, I'll say one of these things before I write and one of them after. So one phrase that popped up in criticism you've written before is squandering goodwill. And you use this. I dug through the earnthis.net archives, which is our blog that we kept together over the years. Uh, Dan originated it back, I think, in 2009, and I contributed to it starting in 2013. But he used this phrase in a review of the TV show Community from 2014, and I've never forgotten it. He said that early seasons basically were really good and, and wet his palate for more, and then later seasons weren't as good, and that this squandered his goodwill. So now whenever I come across a piece of art that I feel like I come to it with open arms and an open mind, and then it really just lets me down. I think about how this artist squandered my goodwill. I definitely was feeling that here. <laughs> like, okay, dude, I'm here in the chair to watch your movie. What do you got for me? And it just never ends. It just goes on and on. And the guy is sitting in the chair musing and he's got a line, let me see if I can find it. He's got a couple things he says. He says, Nothing extraordinary has so far happened in this movie. It's all simple daily activities. No drama, climaxes, or tension. Nothing is there. Nothing much is happening. So let's keep going, and maybe something will happen. Forgive me, viewers, if nothing happens. But we will keep going anyway. That's life. One day follows another. So he, he's just saying to your face that nothing's going to happen and it's never going to end and you're going to think about your own death. <laughs> and in as much as this five-hour span captures that your life is sifting away like sand in an hourglass, there it is. Right. Yeah. He's very direct about the aimlessness of his goal in this movie, for sure. I feel like it's worth, there's like a lot of quotes you could extract from this script to just emphasize how deliberately he knows that this movie 
doesn't have a constructed point for viewers to take away. But I think you hit I think you hit a good one that kind of encapsulates it. So we have come to our signature section. This is Is It Good? Where we rate whatever movie we've just watched on an eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good up through our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good. That would be an eight out of eight. Whereas very not good is our one out of eight. Brian is as I was moving ahead occasionally, I saw brief glimpses of beauty from the year 2000. Good. Man, this is one case where I almost wish the guest didn't go first and the selector of the movie went first. I am curious what rating you're going to put on this thing. When I was about 15 minutes into the runtime of this film and grasped how fitting the title was, as I was moving ahead occasionally, I saw brief glimpses of beauty. And how that really did embody the idea that what are the times that you whip out your home video camera? It's when something significant or when something catches your eye or appeals to you for some reason, that's when you start recording. These are the few moments of beauty amidst a sea of mundaneness and unremarkable stuff that fills up your life. Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, John Lennon says in a more easily digestible piece of art that also reflects on some of the same themes. And when I realized this at about 15 minutes in, oh, wow, he's really doing something here. He really did glimpse beauty as he was moving ahead. I thought there was a possibility I might get as high as a four, a good-ish four out of eight on this movie. But then... Like, very shortly after that, we got one of these stretches of time, like a minutes-long, just dark screen, unintelligible footage, with this off-key, very minimal, meandering accordion music as whether it's Jonas or the composer just babbling, like saying nonsense words, and it squandered my goodwill. <laughs> It dropped. It plummeted. This is maybe the second worst movie I've ever seen. I just could not get through it. I did. I played the whole thing at normal speed and was present for it. But it was... I mentioned last week Max Magician got an F, but it was like the kind of F that's right at 64%. This is the kind of F where you didn't turn in the assignment. <laughs> Like, oh, like you, maybe you showed up to the test and you wrote your name and like your social security number or whatever you got to write to say I was here at the SAT, but then you didn't fill in any of the bubbles on the Scantron. Like you just put your head down on the desk and you went to sleep. <laughs> that is this movie to me. This is a one out of eight. If I didn't make it clear. Yeah. Very not good. Yeah. Very not good. The only movie that I have maybe hated more is Little Monsters with Fred Savage, which I'm now convinced needs to be an episode <laughs> for very different reasons. But all right. Wow. Second least favorite movie ever. That is that's almost praise at that point. That's like it's it's entered a pantheon, maybe not the pantheon it was striving for. It's going to stick with me for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what where did it land for you, Dan, after that? <laughs> For me, this is the ultimate, but from a different view, movie. 
And let me explain. He, he calls this a masterpiece of nothing. And I think that's a really important quote to have in your head when you watch this movie. I think all elements of that are important. There is nothing that happens in this movie. And he does not shy away from that. And it perfects that design of nothing happening. So here's what I mean by it's my ultimate pro- from a different view movie. So it's a five hour movie where mostly nothing happens. But from a different view, it's a very personal look at one man's lengthy exploration of life through a viewfinder. But from a different view, it just repeats itself over and over again. It's just kids who are dancing around the room and leaves that are on trees and people who are sitting around drinking wine and nothing happening. But from a different view, what is life but a series of those events? And isn't this perhaps a more authentic encapsulation of that than anything else we've ever seen? But from a different view, that doesn't make from compelling viewing, particularly because large components of the craft are not well done. There's no professionalism in the audio design. The footage itself is gnarly and like very clearly done from a home film camera. But from another view, it captures something specific and authentic. And indeed, if it if it only encapsulates that kind of non-professional perspective on life that's not very polished, that is indeed how we would perceive life. But from another view, it's just a dude in New York who had his camera on a whole lot and put that all together. But from a different view, maybe, I don't know, like this captures a specific world that is unlike anything else and with a specificity that is unmatched elsewhere. And this movie is literally unrateable to me. Like, I actually was very tempted. I I wrote down one time, I cannot provide a rating for this film because in a very kind of detached sense, I very much admire and can see how this movie does something that nothing else does. And like things about it, like the mood that it creates are just so unlike literally anything and made me think about life and memories in ways that I haven't in a long time. On the other hand, like there's just pieces of it that kind of crumble when you look closely at it. It did certainly make me feel things. There were moments where I had to like shake my head back and forth and pause the film and be like, holy moly, I was like in a trance where I was like transported to where this guy was. And this was like alchemy right here that I've never seen before. But then it's accompanied with like this bullshit. This is a political film. And I don't know, dude, I just could not wrap my head around as I was moving ahead occasionally. I saw brief glimpses of beauty, but uh, as the movie ended, like there were whole times where I zoned out. There were whole times where I did not know what to think, where I, I was checking my emails as it was happening. And then there were moments where I was like, I don't know, like enraptured in just like a poetic way, not even like a film way, but just like a blast of thoughts and images in like an abstract form coming at me. Man, given that I couldn't decide what it was, I think from a certain prism, this movie actually is a masterpiece. I really do. And that's not a joke. I know that you gave it a one. And I think that there is a case for this being a tour de good. I think 
if you are a, a certain mindset and you come to this saying, I want to see something that's literally never been done, shows me an experience I've never had before in film and makes me feel that intensely and in a prolonged manner, this will give that to you. Believe it or not, I'm actually kind of close to that mindset. Like, I was fond of this film, despite all of the bad things that it did. I liked Jonas. I didn't chime in as you were saying that you hated all of his stuff, because I actually kind of liked when he was talking in his like weird, ugly audio into the film about his life. <sighs> there was enough stuff that I didn't like that I'm not calling it a masterpiece, but... Here's what I'm thinking. I don't want to close the door on saying that this is a masterpiece. I don't know if it is. It might be worse than even what I'm saying, but there were moments where I was charged in a way that films do not often charge me. To keep the door open, we have our 75th spectacular coming up where we get to re-rate up or down one level. I'm going to give this a 7 out of 8. I'm going to say that this was an exceptionally good movie in some contexts. Not every context, not someone who likes cohesive narratives, who likes restraint, who likes their movies to be presented in a way that gives you a very focused takeaway from the film. But in terms of things that make me experience and think about things that I otherwise would never, not in a million years, see in any other film, this had it there. This made me think about life and death and other movies do that, but this one did it in a sort of hypnotic and unusual way and a long form personal way that I just can't see any movie ever doing in the same way. And for all the things I didn't like about it and thought were kind of amateurish and stupid, there was something in its tendrils that hooked me. And so in lieu of giving this film an incomplete, I can't give you a rating. I'm, that's the number I'm throwing out there, and then I'm ducking for cover as the tomatoes fly over the wall at me. Well, I'm glad we have finally covered a movie where there's a true gulf between us. <laughs> Normally, we tend to be at least somewhat in agreement. I think the previous uh, gap was maybe like three points. I think a six-point rating gap is going to stand for a while. And and potentially a seven come our next yeah, special. perhaps. I was tempted to just pull the trigger on it, but I couldn't in good conscience, given all the stuff that we said about it here. But there we go. Something truly unusual. One final piece of work I want to compare it to that is maybe not the best analogy because it's not something that the common listener is going to be able to dig up. But in 2004, my parents had their 20th wedding anniversary. So they've been married for 20 years. And my dad's gift to my mom was he made this slideshow of their story so far their first 20 years being married and he like went through all their old pictures and put it together probably in windows movie maker but i mean this was 2004 so i didn't even know at this point that we had any software on the computer that could edit video and i think it was all just still images but he also paired it with music songs that he liked and you know beginning to the 20-year mark, it kind of told the story in order with the images and the music. And it was just really powerful. And again, I didn't know that we could even do that with the technology that we had at that point. And just very moving and cohesive while still giving the sense that it had 
you know, we were getting the best bits of 20 years of footage. That's pretty awesome. And so that was in that was in my mind watching this. And I don't think this captured the same feelings. But I mean, again, how could it? Because this is Jonas's family, not ours. We are inherently distanced from it somehow. Absolutely. And that was something I struggled with is like, I don't really know or care about these people. And yet I find something evocative in the way that they are captured here. And I wish that it was about someone that I knew, you know, like in the same way that you saw this slideshow and it was like very personal to you and your family. I wish I could see maybe not a five hour version of this, but like a 45 minute version of this movie about my grandfather who fought in World War II and worked in the general store and founded his own furniture company. It's like, I don't know. I wish I could see components of people's lives in this very intimate, specific way, but also like very moody, maybe not moody, very um, impressionistic way of thinking about their, their life and their existence. So, I think anybody who made it, it would look and sound a little different. Yeah, for sure. Man, there we go. That is a big gap for us. And Brian, what will we be watching and discussing in our next episode? You know what season is coming up, Dan? Spooktober? It's spooky season, that's right. So we're finally opening up the grave, pulling out a slab, a slate of new Halloween selections. Things with ghosts and goblins and ghouls. And I am opening the floodgates with a classic short story and the adaptations it has inspired. I have got several different Sleepy Hollow stories. A couple different takes on that that I have brought together. Uh, specifically, I wanted you to watch the 1999 Tim Burton movie, Sleepy Hollow. The Disney version of Legend of Sleepy Hollow from 1949 which was part of their package film, uh, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, and the second season premiere of the PBS kids show Wishbone, which is the dog's take on Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you, if you get a chance, why not give a listen or a read-through of the original story itself from 1820 to really put us in the fall spooky spirits mode and hey if you add all those together it's still shorter than as i was moving ahead occasionally i saw brief glimpses of beauty that's true just a bit it's like it comes out to like maybe four hours if you got the audiobook in there cool i'm looking forward to that i know very little about this story and i haven't seen any of the things that you've mentioned so this will be a learning experience for me and i'm looking forward to talking about Hopefully a more conventional narrative experience for us. Oh, I promise it'll be more conventional. <laughs> we'll bust out the apple cider bourbon and we'll have a festive harvest party. Yeah, I'm there, man. That's exciting. So now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of As I Was Moving Ahead Occasionally, I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty, or any film we've previously discussed. Each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. 
and we'll receive it and we'll be excited about it and we'll read it on this podcast if we select it. Brian, we got no submissions this week, unfortunately. After last week, we got one. This one, there was none for us. So I don't have anything to read for you. No gift cards to give out. But It's okay. That's how it goes. Yeah. Maybe next time. So we look forward to hearing from you all. Brian, thank you for joining me on this unusual outing. Oh, it was a journey. Indeed. And thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>